Welcome to the State of the Lakers podcast, everyone. Happy Wednesday. I hope you all are having a good week. Um, Raj and I are excited to get back out here and talk about the DeAndre Jordan signing that took place last week, um, the one that Raj and I got in trouble for being way too excited about. And then uh, um, we're also going to get to the mailbag and talk about a bunch of questions that you guys had specifically for us. But first, Raj, how are you doing, man? How was your weekend? How are things going over in your neck of the woods? It was great. Uh, great Labor Day weekend, um, I guess. Went to the beach, as most people around here do. Um, they just head to the beach whenever there's any kind of a, a occasion, and it was uh, pretty perfect weather. But, yeah, we're getting started pretty soon here. I keep doing the little countdown, but, like, we're, like, 20-something days away before we see this team actually on the court. Um, the offseason is basically over. How are you, man? How was your weekend? I'm doing good. It was a little bit of a weird Labor Day weekend because my wife had to work. Um, and then I had some work that I needed to get done. But in the real estate business, good luck getting anybody to do anything on a holiday, which is <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, but thankfully, it wasn't uh, disastrous or anything along those lines. Um, I'm excited for the season to start, too. However, I, I had a buddy of mine that I used to play basketball with a lot reach out to me and ask me if I wanted to do some high school coaching this year. Um, and, and kind of be, it help him with his program. And I'm seriously considering it, but like, man, like it would just put a lot on my plate coming this fall. So I've got some, uh, some thinking to do over the next couple of days about whether or not in addition to all of this that you and I do, and in addition to everything I do with work, uh, if whether or not I want to take on some coaching responsibilities. So we'll see. Um, I will keep you guys updated on that, but anyway, um, I'm excited. I'm excited though. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to dive back into it. And this particular team, as you and I have continually mentioned, is going to be so incredibly exciting. Like you know, I've I've talked about a lot about how I think it's going to be one of LeBron's last great, like truly great seasons. We have the Anthony Davis revenge tour. We have Russell Westbrook with an opportunity for redemption. Not to mention all the other cool stuff going on on the roster with these huge personalities and names and former stars and things like that. It's just going to be a fun team to cover. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to start with the, the DeAndre Jordan thing. So you and I were kind of on this early. Um, but uh, I think you and I two days before the signing did our podcast or maybe one day. Um, but we both basically said that we were pro the DeAndre Jordan signing. And we got in a little bit of trouble because of a, a clip of our podcast that was taken out of context that kind of made it seem like you and I were hyping him up as someone who was going to come in and be kind of a difference maker, which wasn't the case. You and I were both discussing, you were discussing him as a JaVale McGee type, uh, like guy who would play maybe one or two shifts per game. Mm -hmm. And I was discussing him as a end of the bench guy who wouldn't play unless uh, injuries forced him into the rotation. So we were talking value relative to what the role was going to be. Um, there was one particular thing that you and I got called out for that I wanted to mention, and it was this idea that we were discounting what Nets fans think about about DeAndre Jordan. And, you know, it's funny because, like, I think it's okay to acknowledge that there are different basketball situations out there and they can have a profound impact on how well a player plays. Like I talked a lot about Ben McLemore earlier this summer about how like I wouldn't listen. To, if you talk to Laker fans, they'd tell you he sucks. But I, I really thought he was set up to fail when he came to L.A. He didn't have a chance to practice or go through a training camp where he could learn the defensive scheme. He was given really, really finicky and inconsistent minutes, most of which didn't take place with LeBron on the floor with him. So he never really got a chance to figure 
figure out the defense, and he never really got the high quality shots that we were hoping he would get when he came, when he came on board. So I think there's a good chance that he goes into Portland and looks better than what he looked like when he was with the Lakers. The most recent example for this uh, uh, recently in terms of a free agent type of deal like DeAndre Jordan is Nicholas Batum. Nick Batum was his his opinion league wide around uh, around people who follow basketball was just as low as DeAndre Jordan's is right now. He was considered completely washed. If you asked a Charlotte Hornets fan what they thought about Nick Batum, they would have been like, "You can keep him. The dude's garbage. He's washed." You know that's the way that they thought about him, and that's not. I don't think DeAndre Jordan is going to come in and be some deeply impactful player, but it's absolutely true that his basketball situation in Brooklyn was not set up to his strengths in Brooklyn. He was on a team that didn't care or focus on defense the way that the Lakers do. And defense is a five man unit. If the whole unit isn't equally engaged and equally dialed in on that end, the finished product isn't going to look good. Hell, I could find clips of LeBron James, just minutes and minutes of clips of him looking terrible on the defensive end because he's on bad defensive teams and he's not paying attention and he's slacking and saving energy and all that good stuff. And so I, I, that's what I meant when I said I don't care about what Brooklyn Nets fans think about DeAndre Jordan. I'm just talking about the basketball situation. There's always a chance for that to make some market improvement in a player when he goes to a different scenario that's more set up to his strengths. Is what I'm saying making sense? Do you think this is fair? Yeah, that does make sense. Obviously, like the person that's watching him closely is going to feel some way, right? If when you say like to discount their opinion, obviously you didn't mean it in like to discount their total opinion. But um, yeah, situations always matter uh, in basketball. DeAndre Jordan was in a situation. Well, to me, like players absolutely throwing it in, like Nicholas Batum, Blake Griffin. I think that's a separate conversation for like what's going on uh, with those guys to get out of their situation. But you're totally right. These dudes get into new situations, new places. They they find some like new motivation to play. I, I think the the greatest kind of look at that is Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard was you know paid to leave. They they were like get out of here in Washington, um, get out of here in Atlanta. Uh, and obviously these are different situations, but when you put guys in minimum roles, they can't succeed. And obviously we're not saying DeAndre Jordan's going to come here, you know, average two blocks a game, be this super defensive anchor. But like to me, he can play 10 minutes a game. Like, like why can't he come in, uh, play 10 minutes a game? I, I think that's totally reasonable for a guy. Uh, I actually got his age wrong last time. I said he was 32. He's actually 33. Um, <laughs> I double checked that, um, uh, when, a couple days ago but yeah like that's all we're saying with him he's not like i do agree he's probably he's washed to play the 25 minutes a night right he can't he probably can't do that and and to me like in the brooklyn situation he was paid to be a starting center and that's not what he is anymore he's going to come here and be a, a starting center with you know starting minutes and i don't think he'll do that here so that that was the whole thing with that obviously teams uh fans of teams who watch a player closely are going to have an opinion that that you should actually look at but again you can kind of compare that to situations and it's all contextual and i i, I do see what you're going with there well and to, for, to be clear i think that <clears throat> i think that when a player is actually operating at their you know in an ideal type of scenario then the person who's watching them very closely their opinion becomes more valuable like i absolutely care what Nets fans would say about Joe Harris if he got traded to the Lakers I'd be like I'd be calling Nets fans and be like hey tell me what's the deal tell me the deal with Joe what's the good what's the bad because that's what Joe Harris looks like as a basketball player at his best is what's happening in Brooklyn that's why he got paid almost 20 million dollars a year uh you know the last time he resigned that that is the 
the ideal situation to evaluate him in. The Blake Griffin example you used is perfect. Like, Nets fans, did you care what Detroit Pistons fans told you about Blake Griffin? Or were you just excited to have Blake because you figured that when he came into the Brooklyn Nets system, he would look better and that it would it would be somebody. And guess what? Blake Griffin played 40 minutes in Game 7 against Brooklyn last year and was like 7 for 13 from the field. He was awesome. So you, you, you were the latest example of what Lakers fans are talking about with DeAndre Jordan. So it's just – and you guys actually needed Blake to play a much, much, much bigger role. Um, but anyway, we're past that. It is what it is. I'm excited about Dwight because I think – as a matter of fact, for, for the purposes of our mailbag – I wanted to jut in with my own question for you uh, as our first question. So um, I'm stoked about the DeAndre Jordan signing because I view him as a reasonable facsimile of Dwight Howard to be able to, in the case of an emergency injury, whatever it might be, whether AD goes out, you can play both centers in tandem you know, uh, spelling for each other whenever they rest. Or if uh, Dwight is out, you can kind of just play DeAndre Jordan in the same role. I like him as just a stereotypical uh, depth piece in that regard. And I like, I prefer to play the same style with our centers the way we did with JaVale and Dwight. I thought that was a, a decent example. Um, but you told me before the show that you think that AD is still going to play the four. So I would here's, here's my uh, question for you. Can you make the case for us why you feel so confident that Anthony Davis is going to primarily play the four this year? I wouldn't know about primarily, but I think he's definitely going to start at the four and play a lot of minutes there. Well, I was going to get to this at the end of the pod, but I, just a quick like thing, because I see a lot of people um, attacking Anthony Davis right for not wanting to play more center. And if you feel like he should play more center, I totally respect that opinion. And you know, like you, you should have that, you should have that ability to have that opinion. Even you think he should play probably center full time. Right. And I, I think that's totally fine. I just don't like when people totally discount the opinion of the guy that's, you know, actually going out there and playing the position, you know, they're like, Oh, Anthony Davis is so dumb for not wanting to play. That's the guy that's actually going out and doing it and playing both. So maybe like his opinion kind of does matter on this. Like maybe there's a reason why he wants to play more power forward. Like maybe there is some kind of physical toll that he goes through. Maybe there is some kind of mental toll that he has through it. So I just feel like that should be also taken into account. And again, if you think he should play more center, and I also agree with that. I just think it's weird seeing that on the timeline. But like I feel like you, they got two full time center like center type of positions. Dwight Howard's going to play ten to fifteen minutes a game. Andre Jordan I think can play ten minutes a game. Marcus All who's still on the roster. Like I. Not sure if he's going anywhere. I don't think he wants to retire and give up that that money. I, I'm not sure. Um, so he's still on the roster. He's another center. So like to me, that's why I think Anthony Davis will start at power forward. And look, if they start losing, whatever, maybe they switch it up. Maybe against second units. I, I feel like maybe in second units is where they can really fit him at center, take LeBron off the floor, run over the Russ and Russ and uh, AD. But to me, like that's my reasoning behind it. The signings kind of tell me that um, I don't think you go pick up DeAndre Jordan if you think AD's playing. 35 to 40 minutes at center, you know, during the season. Like, I just don't think you do that. So that that's my kind of case for it. What do you think? You know, it makes sense. You make a good case. And for the record, all the intel on this is all over the place. Like, we had Brad Turner uh, from the LA Times basically saying that AD intends to play the five much more this year. And then we had uh, Dave McMenamin on an ESPN podcast basically saying, like, like pretty definitively that he doesn't think AD would consider starting at the five. So you, there's all sorts of mixed intel, and it's everywhere. You know, my my uh, basic thought process on it is that uh, I think they would have another 
um, another really usable big, you know, so for instance, la- uh, last year they had, you know, Montrez Harrell, they had Marcus all, they had, uh, Andre Drummond. They also had Markeith Morris who played a lot of small ball five in that particular case, because they're all very old. I would think that they would want another younger option at the center position if they if there were so many center minutes available like if you were if Frank Vogel's sitting there and he goes AD's playing eight minutes at the five and the rest of his minutes he's at the four then he needs 40 center minutes and I think if he needs 40 center minutes he's going to want a more diverse group of centers I think he's going to want a younger player in there to mix in he's going to want some energy out of that position instead of alternating between all of the retired the near retirement guys that's and and then I also think they're going to want to start THT I have a feeling in my gut based on absolutely nothing that that THT is going to be very prominent this year and may even start. And you're going to have some issues with spacing. If you have THT and Russ and a center on the floor, um, it just might make the, the lineups not work, but that, that's just my opinion. And I don't necessarily have any, uh, uh, qualms with anybody who disagrees with me. It's just one of those things where I'm reading the tea leaves here and it's pointing me this way and you're reading them and it's pointing you that way, which is the interesting thing about this kind of stuff is you can have two people that watch it as closely as you and I do and come to completely different uh, conclusions. So so you said that the intel is mixed, right? There's a lot of uh, mixed intel. Anthony Davis has not mixed his intel. It's been it's been really clear That's the last few point. years. What is, what, I know there was a little dinner in August, right? I think it or. What, what month are we in? Whatever, in July. The one with where, Russ. Uh, one with Russ and LeBron where he said, I'll play more center. And that's all fine and well in July in a quiet room where no one hears anything. But, you know, when Anthony Davis is in public, he has been very clear about what he wants to do. He has not mixed his words at all. He said, I'll play them when I need to. And again, to me, I always say a Tuesday night in Charlotte just doesn't really fit that description for me. And neither does opening night against the Warriors. Like, those don't fit the description to me of him playing center. Look, in the playoffs, he started at center a ton of times. Um, they benched Dwight and JaVale for series on on series. Like, I believe him when he says he'll play it when he wants to. But, you know, when, when a guy tells me something, I kind of believe him. And his actions and the actions have kind of showed that up. He's been starting at power forward for a long time, including um, last year. They went and got another center when... Uh, just to get a just to start at power forward some more so um that's that's my take on it i would like to be proven wrong on it but until i see it uh, that's what i'm going with you know and th- there's more evidence in your corner than there is in mine so i would i would i would say that you're not uh, uh poised to be on the wrong side of history or anything anyway so the, the, the one of the main reasons why i'm kind of trying to speak this into existence has to do <laughs> with the article that i wrote um, and, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, it's just in my Twitter feed, but I wrote a little thing just about how I have noticed some changes with the way the Lakers built this roster to try to update into the modern era. And namely the examples that I used at the beginning of the article to kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about is the Lakers being stuck on 56 points through halfway through the third quarter of game one against the Suns, really struggling to score and having issues with spacing. And LeBron driving into multiple bodies and AD driving into multiple bodies. And then the Clippers upsetting the number one overall seed uh, with Reggie Jackson dusting uh, um, Rudy Gobert to the basket for a layup with no help because they have all of their shooters positioned in a way where the help defense can't come in. And, And it just made the game easy for the Clippers ball handlers. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that 
I listed it in the article, but the Lakers have like six shooters that shot over 40% last year. Like Rondo was over 40%. None, none was the only one that wasn't over 40%. None in uh, Ariza, but none was 44% when he was wide open. And he just happened to take a bunch of complicated, difficult shots. But Malik Monk shot the ball extremely well last year. Wayne Ellington shot the ball extremely well last year. Kent Bazemore shot the ball extremely well last year. Carmelo Anthony shot the ball extremely well last year. So between that, and my uh, uh, um, uh, assertions about the center position and AD going to the five, I think I think the Lakers are trying to have their basketball games look a little bit more like Clippers games on the offensive end. And I, what I mean by that is just more modern spacing, lots more, a lot, a lot more shooting, a lot more opportunity to make it so that AD and LeBron are always playing at their best, which may, will inherently lead to winning. Um, that was kind of my read on the summer. So even outside of your takes about the the center position, do you think the Lakers have done a good job of kind of trying to capture some of that modern offense that you've seen elsewhere in the league? Because real quickly before you respond, and I mentioned this in the article, the Laker offense has been horrible over the last two years. Despite the championship, despite everything, I, I talked about this in the article, but they finished the year last year, uh, uh, or two years ago, the year they won the title, at 11th in offense. Um, but they, the, they, the primary good parts of their offense were in transition off of steals and things along those lines. This is something Zach Lowe harped on all year. In the half court, they couldn't score. <laughs> and it ended up not biting them in, in the ass, so to speak, in the playoffs. But that was a problem that continued to be a problem the next season and they couldn't score against Phoenix and they lost. So that that's kind of the, the reason why I brought that up. Well, what are your thoughts on that whole situation? Yeah, for sure. They definitely kind of uh, lean more into offense this year, right? That, that Lakers team was definitely uh, like, we're going to defend like hell and then our offense be just good enough to kind of win games. And that's kind of a crazy statement you just made that they can't score in the half court with, you know, LeBron James and Anthony Davis um, playing at the same time. Um, they play a really and like Reggie old. Jackson's lighting everybody up on the other end. That's what I'm saying. It's funny about that Clippers team because like they went to that because Kawhi went down. Right. So Kawhi still plays this like old school mid post, give me the ball isolation, mid range kind of pull ups. But when he went down and I was at that game six where they just actually torched Rudy Gobert every time. They really did just space the floor and just drive at him. And that, that is like the kind of game there. I think they can do that again with AD at the five. Um and I'm interested to see what they do in the half court, what kind of, because they ran a lot of post-ups, a lot of, you know, AD isolation kind of, and that's kind of what playoff basketball has kind of moved to, right? This like isolation, mismatch hunting type of stuff. I think LeBron's really good at that. Um, AD attacking against switches, but you throw Russ into there and you talked about the spacing. I feel like even with Russ, Braun and AD, your spacing is still not I don't know how to say like it's not maximized to where it could be um, in the modern game. So I don't think they'll ever be like the Clippers kind of where it's just these five guys outside driving kick, driving kick, driving kick. Um, they can do some of that. They definitely did though lean more into offense. We were playing all these dudes who couldn't shoot, right? All these defenders who couldn't shoot. Alex Caruso being kind of the main uh, main stage of that. So so I, I do agree with you. I think they did go into more shooting. We'll see how those guys defend. Uh, I feel like the increase in offense can kind of bridge the gap between the drop and defense here. Um, but we'll see. Again, Like I, if they continue to play these two centers, it's still going to be ugly as hell in the half court. That's just, that's just the kind of uh, thing you give up 
by you know taking away the rim on the other end by by being more physical by being this super crazy defensive offensive rebounding team Uh, there's a give and take you have to do with that and I think that's the give there is that you don't get this beautiful modern spacing that like LeBron had in 2017 with the Cavs and stuff like that so so we'll see how how their offense works this year it's all about occupying defenders you know the 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 it can be done through shooting. It can be done through off-ball action. It can be done in a half dozen different ways. But if you can't occupy defenders, then they're going to position themselves somewhere on the floor where they can uh, um, disrupt the ball handler. You know, either either through stunting or through straight up cutting them off or rotating or whatever it might be. So, for in in that in that regard, like it just you know, basketball is a momentum sport too, in the sense that it's important for your stars to get a couple easy shots early in the game so that they can get a rhythm going. It's important for Anthony Davis to get good looks so that he can have the confidence to make his turnaround jump shot out of the post. Whereas like, you know, you look at that Warriors game in the play in, it's like, he's not getting anything easy. So now because Draymond's so good defensively, so he has to go to some, some uh, uh, turnaround jump shots is basically all he can take, but he has no confidence because he hasn't gotten any easy shot attempts during the game. And it just becomes like this snowball effect where, you know, LeBron's now frustrated because he can't create anything offensively because he's driving into like six bodies. And and look at what happened to Dennis Schroeder, like Dennis Schroeder, a guy who relentlessly attacks the basket. I mean, he had a zero point game in the playoffs. And and, and to me, in, in my opinion, that is in large part, because of the archaic uh, offensive system that the Lakers were running, not the system so much as the personnel, but as a result, uh, Schroeder literally couldn't even drum up enough confidence to make one shot, you know, and and it becomes one of those things where, you know, are you defending well? Yes. Are you wearing them down physically? Yes. There are obvious advantages. That's, and I tried to lay that out in the article. There's a flip side to the Frank Vogel science that comes in the form of the physical dominance. But you you have to start asking yourself if the trade-off isn't worth it and whether or not you can come, to, to your point, if you can come relatively close to mimicking the uh, some sort of defensive presence with this more offensive-oriented group, I think the scale will shift way in the Lakers' favor. Um, I... I, I we talked about this a little bit last week on the pod. I think that this Laker team could win 65 games this year if everyone stays healthy. I'm extremely optimistic about this particular team. And it's because of the fact that I think they're going to score with great ease, and I still think they will defend. And if you that, that basically translates to a significant improvement in the team. And so I, I, I think they're going to be, be better than ever. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this before we get into our mailbag? Uh, no, I'm just, like I think this team's going to be running a lot anyway. It's going to be in transition. Try to live in transition, and you know there's like a there's a cap on how much transition you can have. I think it's like thirty percent. Most teams' offense is like the max that they do in uh, in transition. But uh, there was like photos of AD that kind of leaked out um, a little earlier where he looks a lot more lean and looks like a lot more fit, and it uh, looks like he's ready to be running up and down the court. So so we'll see. But yeah, man, I think they're just going to try to run. And, and look, like Vogel has a blueprint that he feels like he won with. And he's going to think, like, why should I change that? And, look, the, the offense is ugly. They run a lot of post-up. There's not really much action off of that. You talked about, you know, uh, what's it called? 
getting the attention of defenders and mm-hmm. and, and post up can do that right little it's kind of the easiest way little little post entry pass you get a double kick out um it's really simple they have really a simplified offense and when you have lebron i mean it, you don't really need to complicate things i think that's like the give and take that the coaches probably you know go back and forth with you have lebron james on your team give him the ball and he's pretty much a one man offense to himself so mm-hmm. so we'll see if they make any changes with that but but yeah i see that's where I, yeah i think that's what i'm making point with yeah no i'm i i i'm genuinely excited for it and i think i think the transition stuff is tricky because lebron and rondo play at such a, a methodical pace but I, I think they'll run a lot more by virtue of the fact that you know uh uh this year you know, Anthony Davis was what they used to use in transition a lot in previous seasons when he was healthy, just leaking out and running mm-hmm. to the paint and LeBron throwing that over the top pass. Well, uh, occupying defenders can be done, like you said, in so many different ways. Having a shooter, a legitimately very good shooter, sprinting the wing, getting to the corner uh, in transition, it's it, it opens up so much more opportunity for you on that side of the ball but we don't want to need to dive too far into the weeds on that but i i'm very excited for the 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 differences in their transition attack as well um but so the first question that i i've wanted to get to because i it's it's kind of a two-parter from two different people um so the question the first question came from our friend on twitter the greek mamba um uh Basically, he asked in so many words, why do you think that THT never uses his left hand? And we received another question about THT and his potential leap this year. So we're going to talk about THT for a little bit here. The left-handed thing is super interesting. So, like, um, I, I've been uh, – a couple of my friends that are in the, biz, in the, in the, the world of sports media have, have said, like, hey, like, you should try to, try to break down a little bit more just – kind of some of the individual skill things that these uh, that these players do because a lot of times it's hard for us to understand, you know, what exactly the thought process is behind a player doing one thing rather than another, whether it's a specific move or a specific strategy. And with THT, he has this super funky, really unique uh, right-handed layup that he always goes to when he's on the left side left. of the basket. And it's super interesting to me because I was talking with a buddy of mine named Hassan who played four years of college out in New Mexico, and he uh, uh, he was telling me he's like, man, I was so forced and and trained growing up, left hand, left hand, left hand, and the reason why that they train you so profusely early on to use a left hand on the left side of the basket is because of your body. Your body is a shield. When you go up to the basket on the left side of the rim, you need to get into the defender's body and your left hand extends out and you can finish over the shot blocker. That's the general thought process behind it. And generally speaking, when you go with your right hand, you're now on the same side of the defender and you're basically showing them the ball. And so our friend, the Greek Mamba, he sent me a picture and it was Norman Powell getting blocked at the rim and Norman Powell is relatively similar measurables. His arms are a little shorter, but he's six foot four. He's got a six eleven wingspan, super athletic guy. And he's extending out in front of him with a right-handed layup on the left side of the basket. And he's getting pinned on the glass. And the main difference is, is he's jumping with the same trajectory as he does when he goes with a left hand. So his body is not in the way and he's very much just showing the ball to the shot blocker. And it's interesting because what Talon does is he damn near turns backwards to the Mm -hmm. point where he has his body completely positioned in between the defender and the rim, and then he almost just throws it backwards behind its head. 
And the, I think it's interesting because you think, oh, that's a more difficult shot, right? Because it's not like THT doesn't have the ability to finish with his left hand. But it kind of piggybacks into this other thing having to do with takeoffs. Every player has a comfort zone with jumping. For me growing up, it was always my left foot by itself or a left-right takeoff, meaning I'd plant my left foot first and I'd swing my right foot around and plant my right foot and I would jump uh, off of two feet that way. I was not very explosive off of just my right leg and I was not very explosive off of both feet if I planted my right foot first and swung my left foot around. And so it was funny because if I ever tried to do a left-handed layup, naturally you're trying to jump off your right leg or you're trying to take off different and you're not as explosive. And so now just because coaches have told you for so long, this is the way you're supposed to do it. And you take it, you, you end up essentially triggering a weaker part of your athleticism and you don't jump as high and you end up having the same problem. So what I like about Talon in his kind of thought process there is like, I'm a left foot jumper. His tip dunk that he had in game six against the Suns, that was a left foot, a left foot jump coming down the lane. That's where he's most explosive. And so what he's figured out is I'm going to jump off of my left leg every time because I'm going to get higher. I'm going to be able to have more hang time. I'm going to be able to get to where I want to go better. And so I'd rather, in this case, use my right hand because it's a more natural finish off of your left foot. And I'll just exaggerate the turn and kind of finish on either side. It's a super interesting phenomenon because no one else in the league really does this, and they should. It's a, it's a, LeBron does it a little bit, you can see. He almost does it off two feet, but he does like a power dribble. gets into your chest and kind of turns backwards and finishes with his right hand. But And he probably probably learned it from Talon, to be honest. But it's, it's funny because I, I do think it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon because you talk to guards who came up a more traditional way, and they think it's insane that he tries doing that. Yeah, and, and you remember there was one game, I think, where LeBron did it, and he like pointed at Talon, and he was like, <laughs> he's like, I can do it too. Um, I don't think people do it because it is a more difficult shot. He's kind of looking at the backboard like upside down right like when he does that move like he kind of flipping it flipping it above i think the length also ma- also matters like i think you see norman powell has like a two inch less wingspan i think the wingspan helps he was getting a lot of and ones on it too it's just a really weird um and it kind of fits his profile as a player he's this like herky jerky weird kind of style type of player he's like long strides to the rim i was watching him last year and he has these like super he has like two feet two uh was got two gathers and he's at the rim and he's doing these weird flip and sometimes he thinks he's fouled and he's like screaming at the ref but uh yeah he's a really weird herky jerky player um as a person who like grew up playing basketball kind of late you do kind of get used to when you're comfortable with your right hand you kind of don't want to go to your left hand right so it's kind of like a comfort thing too um you just get comfortable Absolutely. even on the, even on the left side you still kind of go up with your right and until you get blocked a few times um you don't really change it um and i think Talon's a guy that probably didn't get blocked that many times and he learned that he can finish this way so it is kind of fascinating um him be able to finish with that weird curve it, it is different i don't know how many other guys do it in the league like you were talking about it, it it's a really strange kind of move that he has no, yeah there aren't a lot tony parker is another guy who used to do this a lot mm-hmm. his looked different his wasn't so much of an elevation thing as more of an extension thing he would try to beat yeah. the big off the dribble and then he would just try to like kind of sneak it up with his right hand you know it the reason why i brought up the explosion part of it like the which leg he likes to take off of nine times out of ten shot difficulty is mitigated by lift that's that's mm-hmm. how it works like you know when when i when i take a turnaround jump shot out of the post whether or not I get a good look at the rim all has to do with whether or not my legs are underneath me. If I get a good jump, if I really get lift, 
then even though it looks crazy, like, oh, I'm fading away from 20 feet, even though that looks crazy, the reality is, is my legs are underneath me. I have a good look at the rim. It's just like a wide open three because my legs are underneath me. But if the guy nudges me a little bit or for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. I don't have my balance and I don't jump as much as I need to. Now, all of a sudden, I'm just throwing the ball at the rim while off balance. It can get a lot trickier. So from Talon's perspective, like it's the, the way he sees it. Yes, the shot is more difficult, the backwards layup. But because he's getting such good lift off of his most powerful leg, it's actually an easier shot for him because the way he sees it, he's above everybody. He's got really good angle at the rim. And for him, he feels really comfortable coming off of uh, his left foot with that kind of lift. And it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a, the latest example of the, of the fact that like, there's only so much coaching can do uh, to kind of shape someone's game around what their core skill set is. You know, like Steph Curry shoots with his thumb on his opposite hand every shooting coach growing up would call you insane he's the best shooter ever so you know you watch kobe shoot his left hand entirely comes off the ball right before the release steph curry he's got that opposite thumb kind of flicking through as he's as he's shooting his jump shot so the point is is like it's better to coach and and kind of like configure around what makes a player comfortable than to drastically change things. Yeah, if it's Lonzo Ball and he's shooting on the opposite side of his face, you might need to to, to kind of step in there and be like, hey, buddy, you're shooting 30%. It's time for you to try something different. But in terms of something like that, like this, what Talon is doing works. Worked on Rudy Gobert, works on everybody. Um, anyway, so let's get to our, our, our next question. Um, what what uh, uh, Do you think it's possible? Let me pull it up, the actual question, so we don't have any issues here. Do you guys expect THT to make some sort of leap? Since players usually make a leap in their third year, what kind of improvements or leap do you guys realistically see THT can make this upcoming season? This is from Dom. Yeah, so to me, I, I've been saying, I think THT has the highest variance, right? Like this year of what he can be. And it all kind of depends to me on his jumper. But I mean, we talked about it last year, like when the Lakers were 21 and six and last year had a lot of, you know, weird things about the season, but he was in the rotation. He took West Matthews minutes. He was playing. He was a backup guard getting real minutes every single night. And I think that's kind of the similar role he can be in. He's another guy that wants the ball in his hands, though. He wants to be um, he wants to attack off the dribble. He wants to be able to have the ball um, and be a shot creator. And it's going to be tough playing next to like LeBron and Russ. So I'm interested to see if he can be this kind of off ball threat, be a he needs to be able to hit his spot up threes at least. And then that'll open up the driving game. And we talked about it. He has all these incredible finishes at the rim. He's all these like weird one uh, one leg fadeaway jumpers that he likes to go to. He has all these like weird kind of shots that he can go to. Um, but I think that all goes with the jumper and can he defend? Like I thought he got better on defense as the year went on. I think he was an okay point of attack defender. He was really bad off the ball. He lost his man a bunch of times. All these like split decisions you have to do on the floor. I thought he struggled with that. But to me, realistically, like he's right. In your third year, you usually do get that jump and the Lakers paid him as if he will. I think he's the fourth highest paid player on this team. If you just look at it uh, from that perspective, it goes like Russ, Braun, AD, and I think it's THT at like $10 million. Um, so the Lakers paid him as a rotation guy, and I think they 
super are invested in him. Clutch is invested in him. And he showed enough to me to be in the rotation. And you think he's going to, you think he might start. And I, like, if his jumper's going, and if he has, if you remember, his preseason last year was crazy. He was averaging like 20 points a game, um, getting to the rim, scoring jumper was going. If he has a preseason same like that, he, I think he will start as well. So we'll see with him. I think it all depends on the jumper, though. Like, if his jumper's going, then it opens everything else for him. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, certain if he'll start. It's it's one of those things where I think the long-term plan is to have him be the starting two guard on the team. And so it's just a matter of how fast he progresses in that regard. You know, mm-hmm. for a player like him who's already pretty polished, like when you're talking about a center, like if you, you know, when the when the Lakers drafted, uh, when the Lakers got Larry Nance, you know, like with Larry Nance, you're you're looking for these, each season you're looking for these giant leaps in terms of his skill set because he's a yeah. player that was relatively unskilled, who was, big and athletic and he's adding these things to his game tht is already pretty polished like his handle is there his ability to finish around the rim that's there his jumper is inconsistent but he's got kind of those things already so the primary stuff i'm looking at with tht are his decision making so everything centered around his basketball iq that involves the defensive end and his awareness of off-ball action as well as just the principles it takes to not make mistakes on the defensive end of the floor, but also on the offensive end, picking his spots, understanding when the opportunity is there to attack and when the ball needs to be swung around, when, uh, how to how to succeed in games where he's primarily off ball and how to succeed in games where he's primarily on ball. All that stuff to me is wrapped up into the same bow of basketball IQ. And then the second part of it for me would be his spot up shooting. Those two things are the primary areas of, of, of uh, you know, kind of improvement that are realistic in the next couple of years for him. And the way it'll manifest is I want you guys to think about what a good THT game looks like from last year. A good THT game from last year, he's making some perimeter shots. He's not making too many mistakes. He's focused and, and dialed in on the defensive end of the floor, and he's getting to the basket whenever he wants. Those are the kinds like what the primary difference is that I think we'll see as time elapses is instead of that being the unusual rare case, like, oh, my gosh, THT looked great today. The leap would be instead of one out of every three games, he looks like that. It's two out of every three games. He looks like that because his basketball IQ has allowed him to identify the things that made him successful and try to replicate them. You know, this worked for me. I'm going to try to keep doing this as opposed to the inconsistency that you frequently see with young players. We talk about it all the time, the scar tissue from losing. Well, there's a, there's a benefit to that as well. Like the, the scar tissue from winning, call it whatever you want to call it. If you, as you start to be successful, your brain starts to naturally be like, okay, when I did this, it worked. You know, when I did this, it didn't work. And, and they, and they just learn how to, to replicate their formula on a more consistent basis so that they're more consistent. That's what I'm looking for with THT. And if he does that for the record, it's, it's a gigantic influx of talent that could help balance the scales with a potential matchup with a team like the Brooklyn Nets. Cause right now you're going into a matchup with a team with like the Brooklyn Nets who are more talented than you. You know, they're more talented than you unless Russell Westbrook has like a flashback to like 2017, right? So from that perspective, I, uh, having THT take a leap is, is, uh, is the obvious, clear-cut, easiest way for this Laker team to make a significant jump uh, into that same stratosphere talent-wise as the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, we have about time for one more question. Do you want to do the Omar one? Uh, 
Yeah, let's let's do that one. Let me see if I can. Uh, all right, so uh, Omar uh, at OSID24 says, with the roster overhaul and coaching changes, what do you make of Vogel's job this season? So uh, I guess I can start with this one. So uh, to me, like, Vogel's main job here will be, like, we talked about this team has, like, a million personalities as well to kind of to get into, in control. LeBron, AD, Carmelo, Russ. Um, and I think he's kind of the perfect guy for that as well. He can kind of just be quiet work in the film room um, and work with there. But to me, like he has to get this team defending. Like to me, that's my main point here. We talked about like how much the offense will be, how much the offense will kind of figure itself out to me. I feel like the offense will be there. They, they, they brought in a bunch of offensive minded guys, but I think this will be his biggest test defensively. Can he get guys like Kendrick Nunn, Wayne Ellington, uh, Trevor Reza, who's been a good defender, was kind of older. Basemore, can he get him back to being that good point of attack defender? Like, that's his job to me this year. Can he get this team to defend? Because if he can, I think you're right. They can win like 65 games or whatever um, if they defend. And that's Vogel's main job to me. He's been a guy that's gone defense first every single time. Um, and I think that's where he'll go again this year. And that's the reason. Another reason why I think AD will start at the four, because I think he's going to want this big bruising defensive lineup this uh, blueprint that has worked for him, that has won a championship for him, and I don't think he's uh, he's going to change that. So, what do you think? What is Vogel's like main main job this season? Because I think it's getting the team to defend. So, I think his job is the same as it's always been. Like people have made a lot of this whole like, oh, Vogel's got a challenge this year. Like this group's not going to want to defend the same way. And you know, <laughs> you and I did a pod. I think it was two pods ago. Um, I'm not 100% certain, but if you look through our feed, it's in the titles. But we did a pod centered around the Laker defense and why I personally think that they're going to continue to be a top five defense. And I think you said they'd be more like top 10, but we both mm-hmm. think they're going to be a good defensive team. And, you know, the offensive end is easy for, for Frank Vogel. Like, I mean, it's very clear that with the way that they approached the last two seasons, they weren't exactly trying to move mountains to affect the offensive end. Anyway, the strategy was clearly like, we're going to defend like absolute crazy and we're not going to pay attention to offensive spacing. We're just going to basically let LeBron and AD, two of the greatest offensive forwards of all time, we're going to let them just figure it out. You know, that was basically that. That was basically the, their strategy. My guess is the strategy will be the same. Like, I don't think they're going to suddenly be like, now we have some offensive players, so let's just start developing this super intricate offensive system. My guess is it's going to the the primary. Uh, offensive responsibilities are going to continue to fall to LeBron and uh, and uh, Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook. They'll have some. They'll have a handful of different actions that they run, little like those hammer sets that we talked about. You know, uh, with Avery Bradley coming out of the corner and things like that. They're going to have some actions that are put in by the coaching staff. But for the most part, it's going to be advantage creation. The Lakers have three absolutely ludicrous mismatch options at those positions. LeBron's got a mismatch on everybody he goes against. So does Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook is probably the best mismatch guard that, that we have at the, uh, at the point guard position because of his strength at that, at that position. So point being the Lakers don't have to stress about that at all. So Frank Frank's responsibilities coming into training camp are more or less exactly what they've always been. Now the defensive scheme, as we discussed in that podcast a couple weeks ago, are they going to be able to run the exact same pick and roll coverages that they did last year? No, because last year you're mm-hmm. running them with Marcus All and Montrez Harrell and Andre Drummond, who's not as good a defensive player as a Dwight Howard. So there's going to be some differences there. They're probably going to revert back to some schemes that they used the previous year, which was a little bit more of a drop coverage uh, uh, that year. Uh, are they going to be able to you know, uh, rely on the same level of point of attack defense that they had last year? 
Probably not. You know, there's a chance that Russell Westbrook comes back and has a little bit of a revitalization on that end of the floor, but it's it's not as necessarily super likely. He, but Frank will figure it out. There are defensive schemes that you can use to counter this sort of thing. If you lack, uh, uh, if you lack point of attack defense, then you just have to have a really, really well set up help defense profile. You got to make it so that hey, you're getting beat off the dry, uh, off the dribble a lot. You need to make it so that when you get beat, they always go baseline or they always go middle, whatever your scheme is. And you need to have it set up so that people are positioned properly so that you can help each other. That's literally all it is. Frank has his work cut out for him, but it's a job he's done before, and I think he'll be fine. Yeah, and I think he's one of the best at like explaining kind of his defensive scheme to players, right? You saw last year they were still able to stay number one defense, even with all the musical chairs, LeBron and AD playing. Run AD playing less than half the games. Um, and again, this is why I think he also likes that two big lineup because it when you have bad point of attack defenders, again, this is all about putting people in specialized roles, right? If you tell them shade them to the rim this way, it, it can kind of negate some of that um, that lack of skill as a point of attack defender. You can kind of just shade the guys to Anthony Davis, shade even guys to DeAndre Jordan, shade guys to where LeBron is. Maybe if he's being a rim protector at the time, I think that kind of negates some of the stuff. And that kind of also works to the Russell Westbrook skill, right? Russell Westbrook's not a guy that wants to chase around screens or, you know, try to be a super lockdown defender. But he's a guy that does like to get into people. He does like to get in for steals. And I think that can kind of help him having two guys in the backside, or even if it's just Anthony Davis as that backline helper being that, you know, uh, that what's it called that knife what's that knife that called whatever uh, whatever it's called (laughs) but (laughs) but, uh uh, what's it called uh but uh yeah anthony davis in the back be able to be that help defender that can kind of help everywhere um and i think having having russ playing into russ's skills in that way can work as well so you're right i think vogels maybe has the same kind of job but i think with the defenders that they lost alex crusoe even dennis Schroeder, to an example it's a different type of defense that he's gonna have to he's gonna have to portray here for sure. The, the, the LFR guys were talking about how like Kendrick Nunn is the only guy they can really see in the backcourt as a traditional lock and trail defender, you know, and that's, that's, that's true. Like I, it can be more as a touch big for, for someone who's going to be a lock and trail defender. Russell Westbrook hasn't really put the effort in, in that regard. Kendrick, or excuse me, uh, Malik Monk is just a little too thin. You know, THT in theory could be a really, really good lock and trail defender. Just we don't necessarily think of him as a guy who's great to put on a shooter because he has a tendency to get lost. Um, but the point being is like that you just you figure you figure something out. You know, whether whether it is that you start switching those kinds of actions, you figure something out. Frank, I had like the la- last season is the best example. If that Laker team could de- continue to defend at the level they did with basically no front court defensive presence then i have no doubt that the super elite defensive front court that they'll have this year will be able to work in tandem with a lesser backcourt defensively so i I'm, I'm not worried about it at all well we're at 905 you had mentioned that was your cutoff is there anything else you wanted to talk about today before we get out of here the word i was looking for was swiss army knife that's what swiss army knife for, for anthony davis yeah there we go i was like what was that knife called yeah there you go swiss army knife um but yeah i think that was good uh again we're getting pretty close here so uh, i'm sure we'll pick these up as as we go along i'm sure more news will do- drop we'll get more training camp kind of videos there's people there's already workout videos of kendrick nunn and leak monk so we're kind of getting to see them already in action and and we'll get a game pretty soon here so uh, it's exciting yeah guys so we only got to four questions today but what i'm going to do is i'm going to hang on to these questions and then maybe what we'll do is just kind of hit one of them at the end of each podcast here over the next couple weeks because i want to make sure we get to all your guys's questions 
Thank you guys as always for your support. We sincerely appreciate it. I'm very, very excited uh, for what this show could do in the next year. And uh, Raj and I will see you guys soon. Thanks, everyone.